Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. So our guest today is Mr. Chad Bound. Mr. Bound is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He served as senior economist for international trade and investment in the White House on the Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama, and most recently served as a lead economist at the World Bank. With Sumeya Keynes from The Economist magazine, he co-hosts Trade Talks, a weekly podcast on the economics of international trade policy, which I highly recommend you all to listen to. So we recorded this following interview with Chad back in February this year. That was a time when we were still uncertain uh, whether a deal would be reached on March 1st between China and the U.S. on whether 10% tariffs would rise uh, to 25% for the $200 billion worth of Chinese imports to the U.S. Uh, and things have really evolved in the past couple of months with both good and bad times. So 25% tariffs actually became a reality. And on August 1st, President Trump announced that additional 10% tariffs would be levied on another $300 billion worth of Chinese imports. Uh, and on August the 5th, the U.S. officially declared China as a currency manipulator, and we saw a huge stock market crash in the U.S. sort of after that. Uh, we've kind of saved this interview with Chad, waiting for the big moment to release it. You know, when when is going to be the big event that happens between the China-U.S. trade war? Uh, and I now, now I think it's a critical moment in the U.S.-China relations and also an appropriate moment for us to finally release this interview with Chad on the trade war. I know a few months have passed by, but I truly believe that our listeners can still learn so much from Chad's insights. So here's our interview. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chad, and most importantly for helping a fellow podcast out here. Yes. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So why don't we just start with, with trade? So you're actually speaking at a panel discussion tomorrow at Princeton's Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies, and the panel's name is Tariff Wars and Peace. Um, since most of our listeners won't be at the conference, would it be possible if you sort of give us some hints on what you'll be talking about, what your thesis may be? Um, yeah, so I think back to your earlier question of certainty and in, in trying to understand what it is that's going on in terms of trade policy and the Trump administration in particular, we still really don't know um, what their long-term objectives are. They have led us down a path into a lot of friction on trade and right. tariffs with a lot of different countries, whether it's China or Canada or Mexico, Europe, Japan. So uh, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of clarity with what they're trying to achieve. Um, what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow um, is essentially just providing an update as to what we think has happened or what we know has happened so far under the Trump administration in terms of trade policy. So they've essentially imposed tariffs that now special kinds of tariffs that now cover about 15% of American imports. That's really, really big. Right. Um, there's now retaliation from trading partners, not only China, but Europe, um, Canada, Mexico, that covers about 8% of American exports. Uh, and so part of what I'm gonna be doing is just kind of updating everybody what's happened so far, what might be on the horizon, whether it be the negotiations with China, uh, the potential you know, ratification, the congressional passage of the new agreement with Canada and Mexico, the U.S. MCA, uh, potential negotiations for new trade deals maybe with Japan and Europe, 
And then also perhaps even some more tariffs that may be coming that President Trump has talked about frequently on automobiles. You know, $350 billion a year, the United States imports of automobiles, cars, trucks, and parts. He's threatened to impose new 25% tariffs on those. So right. all that's to say there's a lot of uncertainty with the Trump administration, and part of what I'm going to try to do is to explain what we know so far and, and still what we don't know. Got you. Uh, so you mentioned that what Trump could, is already doing is impacting 15% of all U.S. In, in imports. So, so when it comes to trade, I guess each administration must have a different set of priorities. But, but what, what is so different about the under, fundamental underlying ideology of President Trump's administration that make him, I guess, change this stance on trade so drastically from, from previous administrations? Well, that's the million dollar, billion dollar, trillion dollar question um, that I think we still don't know the answer to. Um, President Trump is clearly a disruptor, but the question is what's the underlying purpose behind the disruption? Um, there's a number of potential explanations for that. One is that there are some fundamental underlying challenges facing the United States uh, in the trading system today, including and especially perhaps with China. China is a different kind of economy than the United States or Europe or Canada or Japan, the other major traders out there in the system, and it presents some conflicts for the rest of the world, whether you're talking about the subsidies and the state-owned enterprises uh, that dominate some of the sectors of the Chinese economy, or China's treatment of investment. So when multinational companies seek to operate in China, um, they have to you know, sometimes face special rules and regulations. They may have to partner with local Chinese companies. They may have to share some of their ideas and technologies in ways that they wouldn't want to. These are all policies that, that, that China has tended to use, but that create some conflicts with the, the generally accepted norms and rules that the United States and the other major players have been playing under for decades. So I think there's some, some real question about, is that what the Trump administration is really seeking to do? Is to kind of fix this relationship with China? Um, or is it something else? Is it uh, you know, perhaps more economic nationalism? Is it more that President Trump just doesn't particularly like trade, doesn't like to see uh, American companies uh, engaging in the global economy, and wants to close off America to, to some of the trade that, that's happened in the past? Or it could be something else altogether. It could be that he really doesn't have any underlying you know, strong ideological position on this. He doesn't have a strong philosophy, and it's all just sort of playing to domestic politics. I think those are the kind of the, the big questions, and we still don't know the answers to those. So, so you don't think there's sort of a consensus in Washington, in the policymaking realm, that sort of pushed President Trump to do things like this? So it's not like after eight, ten years of President Obama's administration, a sort of sort of stance on trade. There has been a consensus building up, and people are everybody's trying to say, "You got to stop China. You got to change the rules of, of WTO. You got to do it." And that's Trump is just, or do you think he's actually just erratically? No, I think in fact, even within his own administration, gotcha. there's different um, priorities, and you have some that will view China not only as kind of the economic challenge in a different set of different type of economy um, than the United States and, and the Western market-oriented economies that I talked about, but that also see China as a military and you know, geostrategic and, and political threat. Right. And therefore, we really need to fundamentally change the relationship with China, perhaps right. sever the, the trade relationships with China 
for, for serious reasons. Um, but then you have others that you know, are, are a bit more, at least economically benign, and, and will argue that, well, it's not, you know, put those concerns to the side. It's really more of these concerns about getting China on the economic and trade front to just behave a little bit differently, to take on some of the market-oriented reforms that everybody had been expecting it to over the years, to cut back on its subsidies, to cut back on its state-owned enterprises and let their companies become you know, more market-driven like the, the companies in the West are, um, to stop intervening so heavily in, in certain sectors. And so I think you have even these different factions within his own administration. Um, and ultimately then it's, you know, I'm not sure President Trump is, is guided by any one particular ideology himself. The, the consensus seems to be that you have these different factions playing out within his administration, but that ultimately he is the only one who will decide at the end of the day what the, what the final decisions and, and strategy is going to be. So you mentioned that we don't really know what the underlying principle is guiding President Trump. And, and we, I guess, even college students have learned in Econ 101 that free trade is good for everybody and trade conflict is, is hurting outside. But let's say President Trump does have a political motivation, that he does seek to reconstruct the trade order to a, to a better, more efficient, more fair way. Is it justified to, to wage a trade war to, or to start some trade conflict for political reasons and, and not for economic reasons or actually trying to build a fair system? Yeah. So I, I, would, I would make two slight differentiations from what you just said. Yeah. So I think economists would argue, first of all, that trade um, is, is sort of better for the world than a world with no trade. It creates efficiency gains. It creates a bigger pie. But trade is certainly not good for everybody. When you have more trade, you're going to have some winners, but you are going to have some losers. And you're going to have uh, distributional impacts. Right. Uh, and, that's, and that's inevitable. And so anytime technology changes or you open up or you contr contract trade, some people are going to win, some people are going to lose. I think what President Trump has, has tapped into is that for a lot of reasons in the United States over the last 20 or 30 years, there have been a fair amount of those who haven't benefited from the growth of the American economy. There are some that have been left behind. He's loaded a lot of that, that suffering and pain, onto trade um, or onto immigrants. Um, you know, it's sort of pick your poison, whatever his his his, his political preference of the of the day might be. It's either Mexico's fault or China's fault or immigrants' fault. Um, when in reality, it's a little bit of that, but it's actually a lot more other things like technological progress. Um, a lot of you know, manufacturing nowadays, the United States does, still continues to happen. So we produce more manufactured goods than we ever did before. We just do it with fewer and fewer people. We do it now with, you know, with more machines, more automation, more robots. Um, and what that has meant is that lower skilled, typically blue collar workers, have lost out. And it's not necessarily because of trade, but it's because a lot of kind of routine task right. types of jobs have been automated over the years. And so that, that element as well, I think, um, you know, we haven't talked about. That's not part of the political discussion at the moment. Uh, and one of, I think, one of the bigger longer term concerns, that that's actually a, a much bigger chunk of what's, what's facing the challenge in America at the moment, but it isn't actually being talked about. I think it's really interesting that you kind of saying that President Trump is less about 
addressing trade specifically per se, but more about uh, loading sort of the pain, transferring it onto trade issues or immigrant issues. But, but he does have this sort of idea of reciprocal. He mentioned it during his, I think, meeting with uh, Jean-Claude Juncker when they did the trade negotiation in the White House last July. And he said reciprocal basically mean, means if some country imposes tariffs and barriers to the U.S., the U.S. have to follow with the same amount. So, you know, it kind of seems to make sense to, to, to people. You know, if, if you punch me, I'll punch you back and with the equal amount. So uh, do, do you think this, this is a sensible way of reacting to trade policies? And so I think um, thinking about reciprocal treatment is important. I think the way that President Trump has thought about it um, is uh, at best incomplete, severely incomplete in terms of what he takes into consideration and at worst just wrong. So l let me explain by incomplete. When President Trump talks about reciprocal tariffs, he only mentions the examples when trading partners have higher tariffs on a particular product than the United States does. So he will point to China and say that China has a 25% tariff on cars and the United States only has a 2.5% tariff on cars. Um, or Europe has a 10% tariff on, on automobiles, cars, whereas the United States has a 2.5%. Turns out the United States has a 25% import tariff on trucks. Uh, the tariffs in other countries, in, in China and in Europe, are much lower than that. So there's clearly an example where the United States is in the other position of having higher tariffs than a trading partner. And so you can't just pick out, cherry pick certain products. You have to look at these things systematically. And when you look at them systematically, it turns out that on average, US tariffs are you know, a bit lower than Europe or even China. But it's not nearly as drastic as the way President Trump paints it. And when you consider other trade barriers as well, you know, it, the, 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 the story gets a little bit even more, more murky. Yeah. And so President Trump likes to, likes to pick anecdotes. Um, but when you actually look a lot deeper into the questions, it's not nearly as simple as the way he makes it out to be. So it's not that straightforward. Has, no. You have to take a pretty nuanced view to it. Yeah. Got you. Um, it's interesting because I, I feel like President Trump started trade conflicts with a lot of countries, but they all reached agreements pretty quickly, like the EU, uh, Canada, Mexico, uh, but, but it only seems that only China is, is having issue with the US so far. So, so a lot of people would say, oh, President Trump isn't actually against globalization, he's just trying to improve globalization in his own way by restructuring to make it fair and, and less tolerant to foul players like China. So if you actually want to play fair rules with, with the US, like EU or something, uh, we could actually reach a pretty quick deal with you. Uh, it's just, I, he hopes to... Yeah, so I, I, I would interpret things a little bit differently. Yes. Um, the way I would interpret it is President Trump imposed a lot of tariffs. So starting in March of 2018, he imposed tariffs on about $50 billion worth of uh, imports of steel and aluminum. Most of that, virtually all of that, does not come from China. We have so many other tariffs already on steel and aluminum coming in from China. This was mostly hitting Canada, Europe, Japan, Mexico, those types of countries. This is actually pretty economically costly for the United States itself. Um, you know, a lot of American companies, automobile companies, um, 
you know, refrigerator manufacturer, washing machine. They rely on imported raw steel and aluminum, especially from Canada, to be able to make goods that they sell to American consumers. They didn't want these tariffs, and yet President Trump did them, even though they're costly to the U.S. economy. But by doing that, President Trump sent a very strong signal that he was willing to impose tariffs, even if they would be costly to the U.S. economy. What that meant, and then, well, sorry, and then what he did is in May of last year, so in, in 2018, he started an even bigger case. So these steel and aluminum tariffs were imposed under a law that gives the president tremendous discretion and authority to do what he likes without Congress, essentially, just claiming that these things are a threat to American national security. Under the same law in May, he said, you know what, it's not just steel and aluminum that might be a threat, it's automobiles as well, right. cars and trucks. So we're going to look into that. Well, that's another $350 billion. That's a much bigger deal to countries like Canada and Mexico and the European Union and Japan. And so what happened was, under the threat of those tariffs, Canada and Mexico said, okay, these are such a big deal. We will agree to this new trade agreement, the renegotiation of the NAFTA that's taking place, the new USMCA, even though from Canada and Mexico's perspective, it's not a particularly great trade agreement. Even from the United States' perspective, it's not a particularly great trade agreement. It doesn't open up these countries to a lot more trade. And in fact, it's going to constrain trade because of new rules on what's called rules of origin for automobiles. How much local content there has to be, the inability to trade with, with other countries is going to actually result in less trade because of this new deal. But they felt like they had to agree to it because if they didn't, President Trump might impose these car tariffs. Europe, the European Union and Japan, they haven't yet come to any agreement with the Trump administration. What they've agreed to do is to negotiate a potential trade deal with him. Again, the main reason why they did so is because President Trump has threatened to impose car tariffs on them. And for those two economies, they export a tremendous number of cars. So their concern is they, they were going to get hit with tariffs. Japan, we might see a trade agreement there. We had just you know, through um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement negotiations at the end of the Obama administration, had come to a free trade agreement with Japan. We were both going to be a part of that deal. President Trump pulled the United States out, said no. Nope. But we'd already come to terms, essentially, with what a free trade agreement with Japan would have been. So getting a new deal with Japan probably won't be all that hard. But with the European Union, I'm, I'm less confident. With the European Union, there's even, we haven't even started negotiating yet. There's already conflict taking place because the European Union doesn't want to negotiate over agricultural products. President Trump, when he made the announcement last summer with, with European Commissioner, uh, Union Commissioner Juncker, when they agreed to start the negotiations, basically said agriculture wouldn't be included. They were left out of the talks. But now the Americans are, have brought it back and said, we want agriculture to be a part. So it's not clear that we're even going to get those talks off the ground, in which case we might see President Trump imposing tariffs on automobiles. So I'm not sure we're out of the woods yet in terms of all of these other players, other players getting gotcha. along with the Trump administration on trade. So that's why, going back to your point, it's like it's so hard to tell what he's actually trying to do, not mentioning the, the whole underlying ideology behind it. So, so going, we've been, haven't really touched on China, I guess. So where do you see uh, this trade war with China headed? Like, where do you think it's headed? <laughs> so it's a very I, broad question. Yeah. That's probably that no. Is. I mean, so I, this is this is the um, I think this is the really big issue. Right. So my my own um, personal take on this 
is the conflict the United States right now has with China is of long-standing systemic concerns. This is a conflict. What's going on, what's been going on behind the scenes, the problems were there and would have been there even if President Trump hadn't been elected back in 2016. Now, I'm not saying that if it had been um, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or Marco Rubio or some, somebody else that they would have taken the same strategy and tactics that President Trump has taken toward China. But I do think that this was going to be a moment of increased tension and conflict with China, primarily for you know, these reasons that the Chinese economy just over the last five years especially has moved in a direction that's very different from the way the United States, Europe, Japan thought it was heading. It's become much less market oriented. Um, what mm -hmm. they have done in terms of their treatment of, of foreign investors, their treatment of intellectual property, hasn't been improving as much as one would have hoped. Um, and there are these big concerns. And bilateral negotiations didn't really seem to be working at, at fixing all of the underlying problems. And so these were essentially going to, to boil up, bubble up a little bit, and have, have to be dealt with. What do I think is going to happen with the Trump administration in China? That's, that's you know, a, a really big question. Uh, because I think what we don't know with, with President Trump again is, is he worried about the fundamental underlying concerns? Or is he actually just starting a trade war with China with some other agenda in mind? So again, yeah. we don't... We don't know. Or do, could it just right. be that... Uh, he, he wants to do this for domestic political reasons, to be able to claim a win, and now that he's started a problem with China, and again, it is a pretty serious, right now, China is retaliating and you know, has these tariffs on American products, including a lot of agricultural products, soybeans, their sales, American farmers' soybeans sales to China last year basically fell off a cliff, um, just disappeared. China started to buy a little bit more um, than, than, than they did in the second half of 2018. But there's a real big worry amongst the American farm community if, if they'll ever get that market back because there's other major suppliers out there, Brazil, Argentina's of the world. And so the, the big question is, is President Trump just want a deal where he gets China to agree to buy more soybeans um, and he can claim a political win, right. even though nothing systemic will have right. changed? Or Does is he, he trying to fix something, some bigger problem? So you mentioned how China is imposing tariffs on agricultural products like soybean and American farmers are, are worried, but uh, do you think China is hurting even more than, than the U.S. is willing to, more willing to make compromises in this trade agreement? Is that sort of, do economists today kind of have a projection? I, I, so I think there are certainly um, going to be interests in China that are being negatively affected by both the Trump administration's tariffs, so you know, the inability of China to export to the United States. Um, also, China itself is, is hurt when they put tariffs on American soybean exports, right? They now have to pay a higher price for these things. You know, they don't get as many soybeans as before. They're, they're sort of shooting themselves in the foot. Right. I think the Trump administration overestimates how much leverage it has uh, and how much China is actually being hurt by these things. I mean, one of the interesting elements of the tariffs that the Trump administration imposed, so now it has tariffs on essentially you know, half of Chinese exports to the United States, about $250 billion worth of Chinese exports to the United States. A lot of that 
is American companies, the subsidiaries of American companies, producing things in China, shipping them to the United States. So it's actually hurting American companies that are operating in China and not necessarily hurting Chinese companies. Um, but that being said, you know, certainly there are some in China, many in China who are suffering from this. Um, but the, the how much is hard to say. China's, you know, is itself going through a transition at the moment in terms of the structure of its economy. For decades, it was, you know, an export-led type of economy. It's slowly transitioning to be more its growth being based more on domestic consumers, services, the types of things that are that are traded less. That means its own economic growth is going to be slowing down. All of that was expected. All of that is natural, but it is a bit of a transition. There's a lot of factors affecting China right now, but certainly I think the, the, the trade war, the tariffs, you know, aren't helping. Gotcha. So I, I guess this would be a very a broad question, not specifically about Chinese economy, but just uh, more about the methodology of, of kind of economists thinking about China, U.S., and all those countries. So I, I remember when I went back to Beijing this past Christmas, so I spent a lot of time going around farmers markets, checking out the price level, talking to taxi drivers, all that stuff, basically just trying to get a feel of, of the economy. And I could recognize that the people are, are struggling in, in quite real terms, and people's faith in the economy is, is low. And everybody's kind of thinking, you know, the trade war is really impacting us quite significantly. Um, but when I came back to the U.S. and I talked to my friends, professors, and a lot of, I read a lot of, you know, Wall Street Journal articles, and people say, China is not really hurting. America is hurting. Like um, China is doing very strong. They, they have a lot of leverage on America. And I go on to Nassau Street in Princeton, and I see nobody's really complaining how the U.S. economy isn't doing well. So, uh, so I became very, I guess, skeptical and perplexed because I know the the conventional way of doing economic research is certainly about gathering the data, you know, doing all the regressions and coming up with the thesis, but. You know, me going around and talking to people, I feel like, g led me to a completely different conclusion. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I guess first of all, we should say that in the data, at least for the United States economy, the United States economy is, is still doing relatively well. I mean, right. Certainly, if yeah. you go out to Iowa and you talk to soybean farmers, some of them are suffering. So it's not as if everybody is doing well. Again, there's this distributional impacts when you shut down markets and open up markets. There are going to be winners and losers. Right now in the United States, it's you know, it's agriculture that's, that's suffering, but the rest of the economy, you know, is doing relatively well for reasons that have nothing to do with, with tra trade and tariffs or any of that. Um, it's just the underlying health of the, the, or even President Trump for that matter, it's just sort of the underlying health of, of the economy. In China, um, you know, it's, it's hard to know. China's still growing. It's, Six percent, which is you know nearly double what right. the United States is growing. It's not growing as fast as it was two years ago or five years right. ago. Um, you know, it, but for the average person on the street, it's hard to know always how much information they have about what's going on in the in the real economy. You know, it could be that um, you know it could be that the people that you spoke to are you know what they do is they consume a lot of pork say that's a really big part of their budget and maybe now in China pork prices are a lot higher because of you know both soybean prices being higher that's a major you know feed supply for for, for pigs uh, but also they've had an outbreak of African swine yeah. fever I guess yeah, it's called exactly. which they've had to cull you know a number of yeah. 
uh, or you know, millions of pigs, which is yeah. going to increase. So if, if that's a particularly part, big part of your budget, you may be being impacted. You may think that that has to do with the trade war, and maybe some of it does, but it's not clear you know, that kind of the average person always know how, how to connect the dots um, and, and being able to link what's happening in, in the everyday world to what the actual true underlying economic you know, motivating events might have been. So, so I guess it's more about finding a balance between um, looking at it from a more holistic perspective as an economist, yeah. you know, so. Well, I mean, I guess the other thing that I would say is um, economists ha do have a challenging time analyzing what's going on right in the moment because we like to have mm -hmm. our assessments being based on data. And data only comes with a lag, right? And so in the United States, for example, we're still only learning today what was happening in the United States economy in you know, November, December of 2018. We're now in February, heading into March. Uh, part of that is just because it takes a while for us to actually get the information. Part of it is because the government shut down as well, and so the statisticians were sort of off on furlough, and they couldn't put together the data to be able to, to tell us. But you know, the main story is economists like to be armed with facts when, when, when we're giving an analysis and sometimes it takes a while for those facts to show up. I guess my l last question related to China would, would be, so the Peterson Institute actually had this joint event um, with the China Finance 40 Forum where you also gave a presentation. Uh, you discussed the global impact of China's Belt and Road Initiative and the competitions that we're seeing today between US and China. Um, and, and there were a lot of famous Chinese officials and scholars at the conference, including former chairman of China's SEC. So um, I don't know if you regularly interact with Chinese officials or, uh, or the academia, but do you think there's often a sort of a disconnect and misunderstanding between the policymakers from the two countries? And in other words, how do, how do the American policymakers and, and, and academics think of their Chinese counterparts? So. Um, so the, the, the first answer to your question is yes, I, I do get the, the wonderful opportunity in my current job to, um, to speak on occasion with Chinese government officials, uh, so Chinese policymakers, certainly with, with academics. I think that's actually quite important and it's a, it's a two-way exchange of information. Uh, and if you don't have that exchange of information about what the American perspective is on something, what the Chinese perspective is on something, then you are going to have miscommunications and misunderstandings. Um, I think the reality is that there is some of that. Uh, I think perhaps the failure of the Trump administration um, in many respects to consider outside expertise that might you know, know a lot about the backstory of what's happening in China um, could be contributing to some of their slowness into kind of coming up to speed and, and treating you know a lot of these issues seriously. We're now more than two years into the Trump administration, and we're perhaps for the first time you know seriously negotiating over what the true fundamental issues are. Part of that is the administration just took you know a while to to, to come to terms with them. Um, on the, on the Chinese side, I think they have struggled with understanding what the Trump administration is actually standing for, what their true objectives are. Uh, and I don't think the Trump administration is, has helped themselves by refusing to meet with Chinese officials on a number of occasions. Yes, they're meeting with them now, but there have been long stretches of time over the last two years in which 
They haven't been willing to. So I do think it's, it's incredibly important for policymakers in both countries to, to communicate and speak with each other to try to learn what the other side is thinking. But I do think the other fundamental issue is you have to recognize, if you're an American policymaker, policymaker that in China, they, China has domestic politics just like the United States does. Um, you know, President Xi has different factions that he has to try to appeal to to remain popular, to be able to implement other areas of economic policy, social policy. Um, and if you really want to understand what's going to drive Chinese policy decisions, if, for example, you think they might be close to this type of reform that you want to see on state-owned enterprises or intellectual property, you've got to understand the Chinese political system. You've got to understand the different strong uh, domestic players in, 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 you know, the, in the Chinese economy. That requires a lot of you know, in-depth knowledge. So, and the same thing on the Chinese side, you know, trying to understand what's, what's driving American policy these days. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, obviously, but then communication is a, is a huge part of that. Totally makes sense, yes. Um, so we'd like to turn to a little bit more, I guess, general questions now, mostly about your career and your current involvement with Trade Talks. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of your podcast, Trade Talks, and you interview a lot of famous insightful economists and policymakers. So how, how's that experience been so far? I'm very curious, because we just started this podcast, like, yeah. Five weeks ago. So. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's been fantastic. I mean, I think part of the motivation for why um, Samea Keynes and I, who's my partner in this exercise, why we decided to do it was it, it seemed that the, the public discourse and conversation over trade policy, which is, which is what we primarily focus on, had shifted to becoming something that could fit into you know, 140, 280 characters on Twitter sound bites. And with trade, you just can't do that. Trade is incredibly complicated. Every trade policy change that's made has winners and losers that need to be talked about, that need to be recognized, uh, and, that, and the full story needs to be understood. So with our podcast, what we try to do is to take 20 minutes every week to explain in more depth the nuance and the complexities of trade. And we do that a number of different ways. Sometimes it's having you know, fantastic experts on to tell us about their research, to tell us about um, you know, their role in policy, what it is they did. Sometimes we go into depth into certain markets. And so we have done episodes really trying to understand the details of the aluminum market and what the tariffs on that particular sector are likely to mean, or the soybean market and what that is going to look like, or steel. Um, or just the, the general structure of, of tariffs on China. So our goal in this podcast is we thought it was a nice, perhaps educating way, uh, and in hopefully engaging way, right. to get people to be more interested in a lot of the finer details of a, of a more serious conversation about trade. I love trade. You, you tell me any product, anything out there, and there's going to be some fascinating story underlying it, how it was made, why we trade it, who's better off from us trading it, who's actually a little bit worse off from us trading it, since there are all these winners and losers. And it always turns out there's a, there's a fascinating story behind it to tell. Wonderful. Um, and just a little bit more about your experience before Trade Talks yeah. and all that. You served as the Senior Economist for International Trade and Investments 
in President Obama's White House um, on the Council of Economic Advisors. And before even that, you were a tenure professor of economics at Brandeis University. And, and most recently, you were lead economist in the World Bank um, doing research and advising developing countries. So which one of those roles is your, is your favorite, I would say? Well, I guess, um, you know, if you have, uh, you won't probably, but if you have kids, like I do, you don't have favorites. Uh, you, you, li you, you like them all. Um, you know, I think I've, I've taken something away from, from each of the wonderful professional opportunities that, that I've been able to have. Being a professor, I found to be an incredibly worthwhile um, and enjoyable experience. I love teaching, um, so that was, that was fun. Um, getting the chance to, to work for President Obama and, and work in the White House and seeing how policy is made up close, I thought was incredibly valuable. Um, I was there 2010, 2011. Um, it was not the height of the Great Recession and the global financial crisis. But when I started, unemployment was you know, still around 10% in the United States. Um, and that was obviously the main concern, is trying to recover from the financial crisis. Um, I was there during some other, you know, kind of very big events. I was there during um, the earthquake and, and uh, nuclear accident in Fukushima in Japan, um, which will forever kind of stand out in my mind. I was there, you know, on the trade side of things when the, the administration really decided to try to push forward on a couple of trade agreements with South Korea, which ultimately became the chorus free trade agreement, but also agreements with Canada or with uh, Colombia and um, uh, Panama. So, you know, it was a, that was a very valuable experience to kind of work close with policymakers as an economist, but then you realize, well, as an economic advisor, your kind of job is to give advice, but they don't actually let you make any of the policy decisions. It's always the politicians that get to make the decisions. So it, it, it's fun to be in the room, um, but it's not always fun to have you know, uh, not everybody always listen to your ideas and do what you might recommend. So I actually wanted to ask you that because like you, when you advise those politicians, are they good listeners <laughs> in terms of, uh, or, or, you know, listening to your advice or, or yeah. do most of them simply find whatever research that supports whatever they already believe in? Well, you know, this is gonna, this is gonna sound massively um, partisan, but I think one of, the, one of the things that I was most impressed with uh, President Obama was his willingness and eagerness to learn about you know, what research and analysis had to say about key policy questions. And I think his White House tried to use research to help develop and formulate policy. Um, so no, I didn't feel as though when I was there that everybody was just looking for you to give find some piece of research that's going to support this decision right. that we've already made. I, d I didn't feel like that at all, which I think was, was very nice. I don't think that that's necessarily always the case. Um, and so I, I, I definitely appreciated that. Now, that being said, you know, one, one thing that you realize as an economist is frequently your job, whether you're advising, you know, the White House like I was or subsequently uh, when I was at the World Bank, you know, I would similarly work in the role of, of advising a lot of developing countries that didn't have necessarily the resources within their economy to have the same sort of economic analysis that might be provided 
in a White House or, or, or in the United States or other richer countries. So they would rely frequently on the analysis that might be provided at a place like the World Bank. And what you learn when you're advising policymakers is the economist is frequently not going to tell you good news. You may have a, what, you, what sounds like a really good idea, and part of the job of the economist is to say, that is an interesting idea, but unfortunately these are all of the unintended consequences that would go along with you actually following through with that idea. So for example, if you want to impose a tariff on something like steel, well, what you're going to do is you're going to raise the cost to all of the companies out there that actually use steel as an input. And when you look at the data, it turns out there's a lot more people working at companies that use steel as an input that are now going to be hurting because of that tariff than there are just a handful of people working at companies that actually make the steel That's that are going right. to be benefiting from that. So unfortunately, your job as the economist is to frequently provide the bad news that the policymaker doesn't want to hear. Um, now, if you're a good policymaker, you want to hear all the information and allow that to impact your decisions. If you're not a good policymaker, then you know, providing them with information that they might disagree with or that might cause them to change their mind, they might not be so welcoming toward. So speaking of all those bad news, given all the challenges we've seen in the past year or two, do you still think a globalized vision for trade, international cooperation, political integration, do you still think that vision is still achievable, or does it require significant revision from what we had in mind maybe a decade ago? Yeah. I mean, I'm an optimist, um, and, and so that is still very much um, the view that I have of the world as a, as a functioning, cooperative world. I think the one in which we're in today um, is not good. I think there's national politicians that are creating problems internationally that don't need to be there. We have enough problems in the world without policymakers dreaming up um, you know, new fights to start for no apparent reason. So I'm optimistic, but I you know, recognize that, that we, we face certain challenges. And so I mean, then the question then comes down to, well, you know, is there, are there things that have happened? Are there things that we could have done better in terms of policy that maybe wouldn't have put us in this situation today where there is a bit of backlash and a bit of um, you know, unraveling and, and pushback against globalization? And yeah, I think there, there is. I think there has been, I wouldn't say necessarily that it's the fault of trade agreements or globalization. I think it's, to be honest, it's more the fault of domestic policymakers that didn't necessarily recognize that with globalization, it would have big, sometimes transformative impacts on their domestic economy, that they would need to have other policies, develop other policies to be able to help address. So in the United States, for example, we don't do a particularly good job of helping workers when they lose their job for whatever reason. Maybe because of trade, perhaps with China or Mexico, but it may be because you know, your, your manager makes a bad bet on some new product and it doesn't work out. Or it may be that you know, your company decides to roll out a whole lot of robots to make you know, what it is that you used to make because it's a lot cheaper to be able to do so. We don't have good policies in place in the United States to help those types of workers that might lose their job for whatever reason transition into new jobs, become re-educated, training, 
um, perhaps move to the areas of the country that are, that are growing where the new jobs are, are going to be. We don't do that particularly well in the United States. But that's a domestic policy issue, right? Those are the kinds of domestic policy choices that we should be thinking about, we should have been thinking about. Unfortunately, my concern is we're, we're still not thinking about those today. We're just blaming everything on the foreigners, whether it's trade, immigration, anything. We're, we're really putting off the, the true underlying problems to you know, sometime down the road. So I guess that, that might be your uh, advice for policymakers, that to think more in terms of um, not just um, one-dimensionally on trade, or immigration, or on domestic policy, but rather have an even more holistic viewpoint. I think that's exactly right. You have to take into account the whole picture. If there's anything that, that economists didn't emphasize enough, it probably is that. You know, we, we would perhaps, we just assumed that the domestic policymakers would recognize that there would be these big changes and they would implement the, the right policies right. to help people, to help communities that might have been suffering. Perhaps our fault is to say, is to recognize that they wouldn't have done that uh, unless we pushed them to do that, unless we warned them even more that there were going to be these big changes coming and that they needed to, to respond. What we're, I think we're trying to do today is to continue to warn them, is to say even if you do all these tariffs, even if you stop globalization, there is still going to be a massive amount of change out there because of things like technology, automation, artificial intelligence, we'll have to constantly readapt. Your, your workers, your communities are constantly going to need to be able to adapt. And by failing to address all of those sorts of things, um, you know, there's a really big chance that things actually might get worse. So the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. Uh, so I really have to ask you at the very end of our show, what's the punchline here? What's the punchline here? Yeah. Uh, the punchline here is that, to be honest, we still have no idea what the Trump administration's objectives on trade actually are. We think we've narrowed it down to maybe there's three or four things that they could be trying to achieve. But anybody that tells you that they know for sure what they're trying to achieve, I'd, uh, I'd be a little bit skeptical. So my punchline is, listen to trade talks, <laughs> and we will keep you informed as to how all of that is, is, is changing as it ultimately evolves. Of course, of course we will. And, and uh, this concludes our episode of um, Policy Punch. And thank you so much for joining us today, Chad. Thank really, you for really having appreciate me. it. And uh, please go listen to Trade Talks, what Mr. Baum recommended us to do. Uh, it's available on, I think, iTunes. iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you can find podcasts. And, and same for Policy Punchline. Um, so please uh, go listen to Trade Talks and come listen to Policy Punchline at policypunchline.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. 
Thank you again for listening.